A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. You're listening to Star Wars Beyond the Films, the official expanded universe podcast of StarWarsReport.com. There is a great disturbance in the force. That's right, Whistler. Welcome to episode 134 of Star Wars Beyond the Films, your Star Wars discussion podcast, your podcast of legends, your ticket to that galaxy far, far away. Our episodes broadcast on the Star Wars Report website, Second Airborne Division, at www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes can also be found on iTunes, Zoom, as well as on Stitcher, and right on our own Twitter and Facebook pages at SWBeyondFilms. Hey, but enough about how you got here. Let's get this show started. I'm one of your hosts, the defender of the EU, the champion of the multiverse, the bipolar Star Wars fan, Mark Erleman. And with me like an IG droid that never ages, the EU guru himself, the count of two continuities, Mr. Nathan P. Butler. Hey, everybody. That's right. That's right. Never ages, but apparently starts to rust. Rusty. <laughs> that would been a good name for an IG droid. Hey, Nate. How you been, man? Uh, I'm... Well, we're going through the next round of the the stuff uh, for my wife, the things that we thought we're done with. Some of it, uh, uh, I guess it's, some's done, but new stuff has come up. So now we're in uh, the waiting period for a couple of days for another big procedure for her. Uh, on my end, it's just waiting and seeing with that and uh, trying to squeeze as much productivity out of these last three weeks or so of break as humanly possible. So nice. a lot and a lot of timeline work at this point. Nice, nice. And we're all hoping and praying that uh, you know Jody has a quick and smooth procedure, whatever she's going to have coming up down the way. You know, Kate's doing pretty good. Things on my end are actually looking really up. We uh, got word back from the house. We're going to get the big house. So I got a place for my studio and everything. Won't be able to move in until about August 3rd. So I still have to put everything in storage for about four days, which sucks. But for the most part, you know, things are on the up on our end. So it's oh, nice. So you've got to move and then move, mm-hmm. basically. Yep, yeah. And so that's you know I'm sure you beyonders out there have noticed that some of the episodes haven't came right on Friday, and a couple of them have made it to Monday and Tuesday. Uh, that's mainly because I have been pack, 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 packing and getting even in front of the computer has been kind of hard this last two weeks. <laughs> or if you could do a uh, uh, do it cheaper by going through the mail service, although my experiences with the United States Postal Service lately have certainly been lacking. Um, but you go through the Postal Service or UPS and just take all your stuff, and instead of sticking it in storage for a few days, mail it to yourself. You know, How long is it going to take to get there? Four days? Perfect! <laughs> yeah. And I'll be sitting there like, where is where is that third box, man? I need my new genetic order. <laughs> you know, UPS truck shows up, and your stuff takes up the entire back, and he's like, I'm so tired of this camel fragging shower I can, you know. Indeed. Here at Star Wars Beyond the Films, we ask the tough questions. Questions that have bothered you for a long time or simple ones that have perplexed you off and on. You ponder about Star Wars and so do we. This episode, we dive into Star Wars Legacy Volume 2, Issues 6 through 10. Now, before we jump too deep into spoiler territory, we'll give you a quick spoiler-free rundown. Just be sure to jump off at Tarkin's Arrogance. Yeah, 
Yes, I must say, uh, this is an interesting uh, series at this point. Given that this is trying to pick up where Legacy Volume 1 left off by uh, Ostrander and mostly Dursima doing the artwork, you probably noticed when we covered the first arc of this series, Prisoner of the Floating World, that we're not quite as keen on this series yet. But it's very much still in its growing pains. I think that, uh, I, I guess I'm glad that we didn't cover this story until now, because now we're in the midst of what is basically the final arc of this series in terms of what's being released, Empire of One. And that arc is finally showing some payoff to some of the things found here. So it's kind of one of those things where you got to sit back and sort of take this both as an arc unto itself and in terms of setting up things for later. It doesn't feel like it's much at all, but there is an extent to which this plays into things that happen later, so it's a necessary part in the overall grand scheme of things, you know, connecting the dots by setting up the first dots in the series and such here. Um, but it's issues 6 through 10, or volume 2 of volume 2, if you're looking for the trade paperback, Outcasts of the Broken Ring. It's, again, it's, it's decent connective tissue, I would say. It sends our characters who had to meet and get used to being around each other back in the first arc, sends them off on the paths that will eventually lead them to where they are by the time the series is over. This is very much sort of the transitional storyline here. Uh, but because it is transitional, there are some instances where there are characters you would expect to show up more who don't, characters uh, that you want to know more about that we don't get to know much more about, and even some characters that feel like their characterizations are off. Uh, you would be hard-pressed reading this series if you hadn't read the newest issue as of the time we're recording this, the first issue of Empire of One, I would imagine that most Star Wars fans would have a lot of trouble looking at Maricia Fell as she appears in this series and wondering, A, what the hell happened to her since the last series, and B, when did she turn into a complete bitch? Maricia Fell's characterization feels like it is completely off this entire series until you figure out why, to a small degree at least, in the newest issues. So this is an, yet another of these arcs where I'm looking at Maricia Fell and thinking, what are you doing? And she just seems like she's basically turned into the bad politician only in it for herself, only in it for power. That's not necessarily the case, but it certainly feels like it as you're reading this story. It doesn't give you that depth because it's just setting up things for later, and they don't do a lot of hints of anything. Like, don't worry, this will pay off later, so here, let's give a hint that she's not as bad as we think she is. No, no, let's just make her as bad as she looks. Now, I will say, though, that I am kind of impressed that they took a daring approach for this story, because uh, the script here by Karina Bechko and Gabriel Hardman uh, is a team effort. But the first arc had art by Gabriel Hardman himself. This time, it's interesting that they're basically trying to tell us a prose fiction story. Why prose? Because the artwork is so bad that most of the time you don't know what the hell is going on. It's like after all the complaints on the first arc and how muddy and dull the art was, and how it really a lot of times was hard to tell what was happening in certain panels, it's like they listened to that criticism and said, Oh yeah? You ain't seen nothing yet, you whiners! and decided to go in that extreme even further. There are panels in this, I still don't know what the hell is happening. The artwork is extremely dark, 
extremely muddy, not very refined in terms of what you're trying to see here. It looks like somebody did normal comic book artwork, got it wet, and then kind of smeared it all a little bit. I didn't think the artwork for this series could wind up more muddy and dull after the first arc. I was wrong. It is now worse. Um, again, I didn't know how it was possible. It's art by Brian Albert Dice, who thankfully isn't here for the entire run of the series from here on out. Uh, but it makes what is already kind of an eh story that is mainly to set up plot points that doesn't feel like it really pays off all that much. It takes that story and drags it down even more. I wonder if I would have felt like it was a better story if the artwork didn't suck so bad. But unfortunately, apparently, we will never know. So... Uh, a necessary link in the Legacy Volume 2 chain, an eh story in and of itself, with artwork that makes me want to make my eyes bleed. <laughs> well, you know, one thing I will say about the art style, while it still holds that same characteristic grittiness that we've seen in the beginning, it isn't my pot of tea either. But it is nice that they aren't jumping from style to style, where all of a sudden you got one gritty style, then you get a very cartoony style like what we've seen like with, you know, KOTOR, where you plugging along and then all of a sudden you're into legacy territory so i mean I'll, I'll give it that it's got that that dark empire kind of feel to it although in this case i'd actually say it makes dark empire look more uh colorful yes it, it vibrant <laughs> yeah exactly um a, another one though it, it that strikes me with this is that the arc titles are missing i mean and, and this just isn't like a, a suddenly oh hey what happened it's like all of a sudden dark horse in the last year has just decided uh you know we're screwing up with these titles so often and changing them let's just not put anything in there uh so so i'm having a lot of trouble with that like figuring out where one begins and another ends because they're still numbering this you know one through you know 20, one through, you know, it's not like what they're doing with some of the other ones where it's like Dark Times, number one through six, Dark Times, Fire Carrier, number one through eight, you know, things like that. It's like they're just all over the place. So, in that regard, it's kind of like, okay, well, no wonder Marvel ended up getting it back because you guys are just so out there with what you're doing and going full circle with some of the really bad ideas. Uh, but as for the story, I, I don't know. I mean, you mentioned how it picks up from Legacy, but it is something that strikes me that while we pick up from Legacy Volume 1, it's really only what's going on with the government that really carries over. I mean, even the Jedi really have a, no presence here aside from Kakruk. The dark side, their story is kind of, it, it's just what's going on with, with Red, and right now you're still scratching your head. And even though I know what's coming up, I'm still just as confused reading this stuff. And I think that's one of my biggest things you know i'm not sure if not knowing anya's heritage bothers me but there's that aspect of well she shouldn't be a solo anymore unless alana kept the name but that still doesn't explain the family connection i mean it, there's sometimes where i'm kind of getting the vibe that she really isn't a solo or that you know somehow she may have been adopted into the family or something <laughs> i don't know i mean they, they never explain that and they do in later stuff have kind of like a tongue-in-cheek poke at the fact that she doesn't really know it but I don't know. I mean, I, I go back and forth there. We do see the fate of Dak, I mean, you know, from what was going on in Legacy Volume 1. Uh, it does serve as a good transition piece. But again, it, it gets to that that aspect of I'm so confused, it it hurts my enjoyment. You know, I mean, it 
story-wise, I'm I'm just as confused as the art. So, I, I mean, it's like normally when I could fall on one or the other, I don't have that here. So this isn't really one of my favorite series. But I'm interested in, in the events and the stuff going on. But the picture that's being painted, it, it's more concerning with what's going on with the remnants of the Sith and why Darth Red is going after them so much. And then you take that and flip it with... You know, what we're getting with the end, which was, I gotta admit, this has probably one of the cooler endings of the series. It kind of leaves you with that sense of dun-dun-dun. And where that dun-dun-dun goes, and who it applies to, as we'll get to at the end of the spoiler part of this, uh, it definitely was like a shifting of gears. My interest was peaked a lot more. But again, it's only one aspect of the legacy era here, and it's mostly stuff that they've added. So, I mean... As an end piece, I I don't feel like it's working. Um, I I feel like it's kind of telling its own story more than it's it's wrapping anything up. And I I, I don't know. I mean, I, I really would like to have had a, a really good wrap up. I mean, there's still things in Legacy that were never explained. You know, like what happened with Hondo Car and and the Mandalorians. I mean, that they could easily slid that in here. And I really kind of thought they were going to, but that's going to be another untold le- uh, legend story. So you know, we'll go from there. Uh, you know, the issues and stuff they moved fast enough on my second read i remember you know going through the single to single it was just the biggest slugfest and even though it took me forever to read through it i was so confused as to what was going on because i couldn't remember what was going on in the last arc i'm not really invested in this one as much and i don't really know why i think it keeps coming back to the solo family line i am still kind of scratching my head trying to figure out how she still has the last name solo yeah it really doesn't apply much but for some reason it is pestering me to no end yeah, it very much feels like, I, I make the comparison with this to something like uh, Babylon 5. If Legacy Volume 1 was Babylon 5, with its awesome five-year arc and the new movie things that were added in there thanks to TNT and everything when they picked up a series and all, then that was sort of a uh, a dream fulfilled, a massive storyline brought through to a satisfactory conclusion. And then this, Legacy Volume 2, is a lot like Crusade which was the, sp- or, well, or Legend of the Rangers, or Voices in the Dark, all these different spinoffs that they thought were going to start their own new series off of Babylon 5 that never really went anywhere, that got canceled or got a pilot movie and never got picked up. So in a sense, it takes an era that could have been one cohesive story that felt like it had a satisfactory run overall and adds these things on the end that feel like it, it drags down the whole of the era. Again, not that it's a bad series, but it's not anywhere up to par with Legacy Volume 1, at least not yet. And because it's limited now in terms of how many issues it's going to wind up getting, I think it's 18, you know, it doesn't have the chance to ever get to that point. It's it just kind of there uh, in a lot of ways in this case. We've analyzed their attack, sir, and there are spoilers. Should I have your ship standing by? Evacuate? In our moment of triumph, I think you overestimate their chances. Now consider that your spoiler warning, Beyonders and Sentients of All Ages, because here we go, on another adventure beyond the films. Alright, so where we left off was that uh, you had Zhao Assam, who is an Imperial Knight. He is with Anya Solo, uh, who was a junk traitor, basically, who's now being pulled into all these adventures and such. Uh, we will, by the way, get more investment in her character in the third arc, Wanted Anya Solo. Unfortunately, that comes halfway through the series, not soon enough to really uh, boost up 
the feeling you get when you read the first two arcs. Um, but she's there. Her Mon Calamari friend Salk is there. AG-37, this IG-88 style uh, droid, assassin droid, who's a bounty hunter, is there with them. Uh, and they have just saved Yalta Vol, who is another Imperial Knight, from the floating world of Mala, as we found out the name was in the previous arc. And all of that saving was done to get him out of the clutches of and to escape a Sith that's left from the one Sith named Darth Red. W-R-E-D-D. Not like the color, like the, well, nothing. Darth Red. And now, we basically pick up very soon thereafter, because the heroic characters are still on their way back and dealing with the injuries and stuff that happened from the previous arc. Um, but we pick up on Katamai Prime. And we see this government meeting, you know, just standard stuff, and this Snivian, uh, we know it's a Snivian because of the one or two pictures where he actually can be seen amidst all the black and dark brown colors. This Snivian, who's part of the government, is accosted immediately after the meeting by Darth Red. Red comes out, pulls his lightsaber, attacks the guy. The Snivian fights back with Force Lightning. You're like, whoa, this guy's another of these Sith in hiding. And basically, he's berating Red for the fact that Red basically, instead of doing what he was supposed to do, which would have been uh, to go to uh, the system from the previous episode, or the previous arc, uh, rather than going into the Carrera system like he was supposed to and insinuating himself into the government, getting power and such, silently, basically not revealing himself as a Sith, he instead went and basically grabbed for attention. He did the big flashy stuff and drew a lot of attention to himself and to the idea that the Sith are still around. And... Red's not having any of it because he has his own plans and such. Remember, Darth Red wasn't ever actually officially promoted to become a Sith Master, so to speak. He killed his master on Mala at the beginning of the previous arc, so he's sort of taken that name without any other Sith giving it to him or acknowledging that he should have gotten that elevation from being essentially just an apprentice. Uh, and he's not, again, he's not having any of it. He kills the Snivian Sith. What gets me about this, and I had to look through this repeatedly to figure out what happened. There's a moment here where as they're fighting, Snivian looks like a regular Snivian. Now, I think of Snivians the way he's drawn here, and I'm thinking fur. Well, they're not supposed to have fur, apparently. It's supposed to be like a thick skin, so I don't know what I'm seeing now that I realize it's supposed to be thick skin. As they're fighting there, red it looks like he slashes him across the face, and somehow slashing him across the face removes fur, makeup, a layer of skin, something from this Snivian's face, and underneath we see red and black, which is supposed to be the Sith tattoos of the one Sith hidden underneath this facade that he's created. Never mind the fact that when he goes all Sith-eyed, he doesn't really go Sith-eyed so much as his eyes just glow red, apparently because doing Sith eyes requires way too much detail for Thice's artwork style. But I don't know, that, I had to go back and look at that repeatedly say, what just happened? And it looked like he shaved some hair off with the slash or something to reveal the tattoos under it, like to hide himself, the Snivian let his hair grow out over it, and that's an easy way to have it hidden, which of course would mean that he had shaved himself basically naked or bald in order to show the tattoos in the first place while he was a Sith, but then to go back and look at the species to find that, you know, they're not supposed to have fur. It's supposed to be like a thicker skin. I'm just shaking my head at what's going on 
here. It's it's the first instance. I mean, it takes just the first three pages of this looking at the artwork to have something about the artwork make it harder to follow the story. That is not a good sign for a five issue arc. <laughs> yeah. I too, that was the scene that, that had me stop. It's like, oh, did he have like clay or something on his skin? Because it kind of like gives you the impression that whatever it was shattered off or something. I mean, yeah, I, I get what it was serving. Okay, he's been outed. He's a Sith. But it raises up so many questions like, why are they tattooing themselves at this point? I mean, okay, obviously there was an error in Lucas's uh, vision versus what the EU slash Legends eventually gave us. Uh, but yeah, I mean, that was one like, you know, they could have gone a whole different route with a different alien. Maybe had a mask he took off or something. I don't know. There was that was just one that like, yeah, it served the purpose really quick for the story. But when you place it in universe, it fell apart. So we know that Red is out there killing Sith, and we pick up then with AG-37's ship, which I don't believe has ever been given a name. It's just AG-37's ship. Just like the communications droid that's with them that I always forget to mention, the little spherical one from the previous arc, who's going to play a role mm -hmm. at different points throughout this arc and future ones, still doesn't have a name either. It's just the communications droid. But they're all on AG-37's ship, and they've escaped from Mala, and they're tending to their wounds. And this was another moment that had me sort of step back looking at this art-wise. Before we even get into what's happening, I'm having trouble taking stock of who it is that I'm seeing. There's Anya, easy to spot, she's the woman. There's Sauk, easy to spot, he's the Mon Calamari. AG-37's not in the first page that we see of them here. And then we've got the two Imperial Knights. And you've got Jawasam, drawn somewhat different than we saw him before, then you've got Yalta Val, who's basically injured and in bed. And I'm looking at the way, maybe it's, in this case, it's not the uh, Thysa's work, it's Rochelle Rosenberg's colors. Are Jao and Yalta both supposed to be black? That certainly wasn't what it seemed like in the previous arc, or future arcs. Not, and it's not Jao in the bed? I thought Jao was in the bed. I, I guess it is, sorry, I guess it is Jao in the bed, excuse me. It's Jao in the bed and it's Yalta Val, so I guess that makes it even worse. Because ja I was thinking that maybe the one we get a close-up of is supposed to be the black character, and then it's just shadows over the character in the bed, and we know that Jao's supposed to be a black character. We got closer shots of him back in the previous arc, but Yalta never – at most, Yalta seems like sort of like a Persian complexion. He's the guy that's on the cover of number one. Mm -hmm. That's supposed to be Yalta, and here, Yalta is darker than Lando. It seems <laughs> as though it's like they can't quite figure – it's like – well, gee, we got these two characters. They're both supposed to be slightly darker skinned than white. I'm not quite sure which one is which, so screw it. We'll just color them both the same way. It led to a lot of confusion for me in this arc, being able to tell the difference between the two. It finally came down to which one is clean-shaven and which one isn't. That's how I told them apart. Yeah, that's that was me too, and I was just like, when did he grow the beard? <laughs> All right, so they're picked up by the Star Destroyer, Animus. And remember, in this case, the Star Destroyers are from the Empire, but the Empire, at least Rowan Fell's Empire, and now Maricea Fell's Empire, is part of the Triumvirate that's running the galaxy. So it's not a bad thing when they're stopped by the Star Destroyer, per se. We jump to Coruscant, which is where they're going to take Anya and the crew here. And we basically get a conversation I thought was pretty well executed. It's one of these conversations that you would sort of expect from a pragmatic political standpoint, but as a lover of Star Wars and the idea of fighting for justice and stuff, that you're kind of like, oh, no, what are you doing? 
basically the triumvirate leaders, that is Gar Stasi, Mara CFL, Kukruk, and for some reason Antares Draco, who granted is the head of the Imperial Knights, but he's not one of the three leaders of the triumvirate as far as we know, unless he's there just as like the boy toy of Mara CFL. Um, they're basically sitting around <laughs> and have a conversation in which they're trying to decide what to do about Darth Red now that he's been exposed, now that this Sith on Kadamai Prime that we saw at the beginning of this arc was exposed, the Snivian, who never gets a name, what should they do about it? What should they do about hunting down the rest of these Sith? And they take the somewhat surprising decision of saying, you know, we've got other problems we've got to deal with right now. And as Garstasi puts it, it may be unsavory, but Red is doing our job for us. Basically, if he's just hunting down other Sith in hiding, let him. Let him kill each other because that does our job for us. It's like the idea of if you're a you know, if you're a police chief in a major city and there's gang violence going on, uh, oh, just turn a blind eye, let the gangbangers kill themselves, and then go in and mop up afterwards. We think of that in law enforcement in the U.S., and we go, whoa, that's new, that's crossing a moral line somewhere. But they've got a galaxy to run. It's a practical but surprising approach for them to take, I thought. Yeah, I, I too, that was one of the more interesting twists to it. And the fact, you know, that you've got uh, the Imperial Knight, what? Empress? We couldn't possibly, like, there's still that aspect of what's going on with the Imperial Knights that still intrigues me. You know, I mean, they've got clearly their own Jedi-ness going on, and yet they serve, you know, the Empress, which is interesting at this point, because before it was the Emperor, but now he's passed on, and and the Empress is in charge. So it's kind of like, you know, now you've got this whole new vision that's, you know, a new point of view on that vision. You know, it's it's interesting place for those Imperial Knights to be. Uh, and, and so this concept, you know, I don't know, in a lot of ways, it kind of fits with what I would expect from them. And yet there's Draco kind of like, we couldn't possibly. And yet they're the ones wanting Jow to turn and come back in. And Jow's like, hey, no, I had a vision. And, uh, you know, this guy's going to kill the Empress. I got to follow him. But they're all like, hey, you know, forget about that. So, I don't know. I, again, it gets back to that confliction. I'm really hoping that when we get to the end of this series that the payoff will make all of this confusing moments better. Because I know when we get to the point where we find out, you know, why uh, Fel is chasing after Anya, that didn't satisfy me very much. In fact, it made me more confused. Uh, So, I mean, I'm still, like, trying to rationalize, you know, what's going on from the Empire's point of view uh, and how that plays into here. I mean, you know, because we we knew in, in... some of the issues, you know, she gets asked to go to Coruscant and stuff. And she's like, oh, hey, you know, one minute it's like you're a guest, the next minute you're a prisoner, as we'll eventually see. But the way that they talk about it, though, it, it, it makes me stop. And I, I do question, you know, what's going on with Darth Red? You know, I mean, obviously he's got his own agenda. Is he, you know, on the on the threshold of creating a new order here? I mean, you know, is his agenda just kind of like Kriya and uh, KOTOR 2? He just wants to wipe out both sides. You know, there's there's definitely some interesting aspects to how he's gone about things. Uh, and, and I think right now, for me, that's like the one thing that's really keeping me into the story. Again, the payoff is going to come later. We learn more about uh, Darth Red's origins in the last arc of the series. We learn more about uh, the Anya's background in the next arc. Although, spoiler alert! the main villain of the next arc, just like in Brian Wood's Star Wars Volume 2, won't get a name. For some reason, the recent Dark Horse comics have an urge to not only give their stories no name in the issues themselves, but a lot of major characters 
don't wind up getting names. In this arc, if you're reading as individual issues, you'll know the name of the next Sith they encounter. But if you're not reading the individual issues that have the recaps of previous issues, it'll take you a while to figure out who the heck he is because they don't bother to name him except in the recap for one of the issues. It's, it's, it's a bad habit they're getting into of just leaving out names of major characters and assuming that that's okay. Not really, not in this day and age of storytelling. Mm -hmm. um, so they very quickly just kind of do a quick zip through to see where everybody is. Anya is talking to an Imperial officer about the idea that apparently they want to keep her happy. The Triumvirate wants to keep her happy. They don't know who she is yet. Remember the previous arc, who the hell is Anya Solo, asks Mara CFL, where apparently they haven't done their homework to figure out who she is yet because once they figure out who she is and she becomes more visible after the events of this arc, then they're going to be trying to arrest her. But at this point, they want to keep her happy, and the officer even suggests, hey, you could probably even get a decent job back on Coruscant, a plum assignment out of this if you play your cards right, because they apparently want to keep you happy. Uh, as for Salk, he has been working to help repair AG-37 after the uh, the injuries, if you want to call it that, that the droid got back in the previous arc. So he's still being repaired at this point. We see a quick conversation between Antares Draco and Yalta Vol. Yalta is being assigned not to go after Red, but to basically go become a trainer. He's going to go to a Coruscant training facility for Imperial Knights and basically become a teacher. Uh, and that doesn't really sit well with him, but, you know, he, he understands. And he is someone who is willing to follow his orders, usually, even when those orders seem like they're not quite what he would prefer to do. We cut to Zhao, and this is where we get some of the motivations for the upcoming arcs. But it's something that's kind of seen once, and you're just kind of like, Oh, at least I'm kind of like, oh, when it comes to it. Zhao is in a Bacta tank. While he's in the tank, he has a vision of some uh, of the, I think they're called Crossfire ships and uh, uh, Imperial, the TIE fighters at the time, I think they're called Predators. And I'd have to go back and look. It's been a while since I saw Volume yep. 1 where they actually named stuff. That's, that's um, correct. But he's in, he has a vision of Darth Red basically killing, supposedly. He's slashing from the back and basically cutting through her shoulder blades. Uh, but Darth Red killing Mara CFL. He's had a vision, and it's going to propel him throughout this series from here on to try to stop that from happening. But at this point, as much as we've seen a Mara CFL in this series, I'm sitting back going, okay, if it's going to be somebody that we're supposed to be concerned about getting killed, shouldn't it be a character that we like right now? Because at this point, if he kills her, I'm going to be like, oh, that sucks for the government. Ah, well... Because so far in this series, Mara CFL has been more or less unlikable and will continue to be unlikable until the final arc, Empire of One. What do you think of the vision? Well, yeah, it gets back to that whole question of, you know, what's so important about the Fells? I mean, I, I kind of at one point was hoping that Sword of the Jedi was going to give us like an origin story for the Imperial Knights. And, you know, maybe there was a vision that, you know, hey, the Fell line's going to lead us to prosperity or something like that. Because... Again, you know, I mean, the Imperial Knights, they serve the Force through their empire, uh, through their emperor, you know, or empress in this case. And we've gone from Emperor Fell to Empress Fell, and you've got different outlooks on things. And it, it's, I still, I still try to wrap my head around that. So, I mean, I get where, you know, he wants to save her because she's the princess, she's the empress of, of you know, his empire and all that. I, I get the yo-ho, yo-ho, we're off to fight and all that. But, it just gets back to that, you know, what's the, beyond that, what's the driving motivation for the Imperial Knights? I mean, 
he seems to alone, Zhao, uh, have a sense of duty that the rest of the knights are apparently missing or they're just so caught up in their pomp and circumstance of the traditions of, you know, this is the way it is that that's, what's going to hose them. I mean, I, as we get towards the end here, you know, I mean, Zhao's going to be, you know, in the hot seat because of some of the choices he makes and those choices kind of like what happened in episode three, you know, you can't do that. Anakin. they'll expel you from the order kind of thing. I mean, it, it gets me to that spot where I'm like, really, the Empire would would build a Jedi Knight system that's just as flawed as the old one? Like, I don't know. That seems the weirdest part for me to, to absorb. I mean, the Knights are supposed to be a powerhouse equal to the Jedi and and tough enough to stand up to the Sith. But in a lot of ways, I, I'm questioning their motives and stuff. You know, what's what's their driving forces and stuff? I mean, for Zhao, it makes sense. You know, he's got the vision. He sees her getting hacked in the back. And so, therefore, it, it spurs him on. But there's no romantic connection to the Empress. So beyond that and his sense of duty, you know, what what's really pushing him? So we send our characters further along on their merry little ways. It really sort of feels like this issue is an epilogue to the previous arc more so than the launch of this new one. In a lot of ways, mm-hmm. um, we find out that Salk is going to be going with AG thirty seven when he leaves because it makes more sense for Salk with his skills to work on that particular freighter. Um, that's not going to last very long, but at least that's the plan for this issue. And uh, sure enough, Anya did get a good position on Coruscant, so she's going to be sticking around there. So you know, our heroes are finally heading off in different ways. We see a quick training situation where Jao is fighting against a remote and is having a conversation with Yaltaval about, you know, what their orders are and the fact that neither of them really like the orders. Uh, Zhao has told Yalta about the vision, but that's not in keeping with Zhao's orders. Zhao is not supposed to go off and hunt Darth Red at this point. Um, he's reminded not to disobey orders because he did disobey a direct order to go find Yalta Valen Carreras in the previous arc anyway, so he's already sort of um, crossing the line at this point. And you get the sense that, yeah, he's just pretty much going to tell Val what he wants to hear. He destroys the training room. He's like, yeah, understood. But we immediately move into what is the probably the most important conversation of this issue, which is Anya and Zhao just kind of sitting around, having a drink. Um, I would say it's blue milk or something, but it's hard to tell. It looks in the image whenever she's pouring some into his glass that he's drinking sand, thanks to the artwork. Uh, I'm pretty sure that's not what it is, but maybe Imperial Knights have interesting tastes and whatnot here. But he has a conversation in which he, he basically has to lay out for Anya about the Sith and the way the Sith have worked. And, and part of it feels heavy-handed, like, wow, we really needed this to be gone over again? We already know this. But given how young Anya is and the fact that her most recent experience thinking about the Sith was what happened in Legacy Volume 1, it makes sense that he needs to say, he says, you know, besides, it's not just what I saw that worries me, it's the feeling I got from it. He, being Darth Red. Wants me for an apprentice. I know it. And she says, you know, what? That's daft. You're already a full-fledged Imperial Knight. I think you're safely past apprentice. You don't understand. Before the One Sith banded together to take power, it had always been another way. A master and an apprentice. Together they were unbelievably strong. Palpatine and Vader. They upended the galaxy. The reverberations from their reign are still being felt. For a thousand years before them, there was peace in the galaxy. For more than a hundred years since, nothing but chaos. I think he's systematically killing off the other Sith so that he can bring back the old ways. Um, this idea, essentially, that 
uh, granted, they're putting a motivation with Red that we don't really have a sense, even now, in that last arc, of whether that's a true motivation for him entirely. But mm. it's shifting us back to a more familiar mold for the Sith in terms of what they want. And they pretty much have to decide, look, if nobody else is going to do anything about Red, it may be disobeying orders, but screw it, somebody's going to take him out, so they're going to do it anyway. They're going to disobey the wishes of the Triumvirate themselves. So as Sauk and AG are heading away on their own, Anya and Zhao intend to go down and steal a ship and head off after Red, only they wind up coming face-to-face -face with Val, who had already guessed what he was going to do, and is waiting for them in the docking bay with some stormtroopers as issue one ends. See, and I don't have an issue with how it ends. I think my issue is, like, the last thing that Anya and Zhao say, she goes, so, what are you going to do about Darth Red? Same as you. I'm going to do what the Empress expects of me. I'll probably be better off for it, too. You know, and then we, we see, you know, IG, we see Sock. And then it goes to Anya staring out in space in her private quarters. She looks across. She sees another Star Destroyer because apparently she's on one and they brought a second one. Uh, and then she turns. She sees her blaster rifle. And apparently seeing that blaster rifle decides to take action, goes to Jal's doors, knocks on the door. Anya, we have to find him. We have to stop him. If we don't, who else will? And he doesn't say anything. He just looks at her. And then next thing you know, they're sneaking around and stuff, and he's all fully dressed up. He's he's gotten changed and everything, and they decide to go off. And, you know, I mean, technically, according to tradition and stuff, this is going to get him killed. But, hey, whatever. It was on a whim, and she's got the name Solo, so let's just roll with it. And I think that that does get back to one of the issues I'm having with this series. Like, they're banking so much on her connection to the name Solo. And, you know, hey, look, she's she looked at a blaster. She's going off on a random hunch. She's going to be the one that gets him in there. So she's a lot like Leia, and she's like Han. And I'm just not buying it. Like, th there's nothing in the story that makes me understand why she's, you know, being drifted this way or that way. They, they've gone out of their way to say she has no force potential or anything like that. So, I mean, I, I'm, I'm trying desperately to say, oh, it's the unifying force at work here. And it's just using her in that regard. But. There's nothing that, that says why she decided to change up her mind. I mean, she's been living in a junkyard. She's been looking for this cush opportunity. She was going to sell a lightsaber for an easy score to get off that planet. Now she's got a limo pretty much going to drive her to the capital and put her up in one of those nice little towers in the Disney castle. And she's ready to just pee all over that. I just, I don't get it. Yeah, in some essences, it's, it sort of feels like there's some rushed storytelling going on here. But then we get to issue number two which takes a lot of time on some chase material, so hopefully this issue won't take us as long to get through as the first one. Um, basically, we pick up right back there in the docking bay. There's some words exchanged between Yalta and Zhao, but uh, Anya puts her hand on her blaster, a stormtrooper shoots, you get a brief uh, blast back and forth where basically Zhao has to protect Anya with his lightsaber until Yalta Vol kind of holds it all out, you know, stops us off, ceasefire, stand down. And says, you know, what you're doing is selfish. Uh, you know, Anya isn't one of us, an Imperial Knight, so she doesn't understand what that means, but you do. Presumably, as we find out as we go through the story, it basically means that it's desertion and that penalty for desertion is death, which is something that's going to carry all the way through to the end of the series as far as a, uh, a consequence goes of this. But he lets them go. He doesn't agree, but he lets them go. 
we start getting hints that, that this is going to push us toward Dak, which is where the title comes from. The Broken Ring is the ring of shipyards over the planet Dak. That's where Outcast of the Broken Ring comes from. Um, so we see Garstazi talking to a constituent about how bad things are, um, but there's nothing they can really do at this point to deal with what's happening uh, with the shipyards at Dak and with some of the traffic around there and stuff like that. Things that seem to make it a dangerous place to go, even though the planet itself is mostly uninhabited because of what happened with Darth Crate back in the previous series. And as they're kind of starting to think about that, kind of planting those seeds in your mind, we get the first step in the hunt for Darth Red. While looking through uh, information in their computer system and whatnot, and, you know, like reports on criminals and everything, they're flipping through images, and Anya recognizes a guy named Dybin, whose name we didn't get in the last arc, who I would almost forget was even in the last arc, who was the little dude that was there with Red from time to time, uh, doing things like bringing food to the imprisoned Yalta Val back in the previous arc. She apparently saw him enough to recognize his face from all these wanted image type things. And when they figure out that he's on this planet, Nalid, they go racing off to find the guy. He has a criminal record on his home planet. He was captured in the Surd Nebula. Um, he was picked up in an escape pod as he was trying to escape from Mala and all. And now he's been extradited back to his home planet of Nalid. They're going to try to get there and talk to him, hoping he has some leads on Red. So now we get the beginnings of a real investigation going on here. It sort of felt, I mean, the, the scene with Dak now looks like setup for what's coming with Dak. The scene where they're talking about Dak when first reading this issue and it was released as singles felt like wasted space. Because it was like, what does this have to do with anything? But it does tie into what's going to be coming on later. And I like the fact that now they're doing an actual investigation. It's none of this I'm feeling with the Force, and it tells me exactly what planet and what city and what part of the city to go to for this person whose name I didn't know, but now I do because of the Force kind of stuff. It's none of this Jax Pavan in The Last Jedi. I'm thinking. I'm touching the Force. Oh, I need to go find the Night Sisters. I need to go find the the, the Witches of Dathomir all of a sudden that I've never heard of otherwise and that kind of thing. It's, <laughs> it's none of that I'm just going to use the Force kind of crap that's such a cop-out in terms of investigations. They're actually doing some investigating. That I liked. Well, and, and then also, you know, it was like Val, when he, in the, like, the second thing he says, you know, he's like, we must trust that the Force will guide the Empress in this. We must trust the Force. And it gets back to that, you know, it's like, they're really putting a lot of faith in that one leader, you know. And I mean, even in the last issue, or not issue, the last series, you know, Legacy Volume 1, we've learned that it's also the Imperial Knights' duties to stand up against your emperor or your empress if they're falling sway to the dark side. I mean, they're just trusting that, that the force is going to guide the empress in this. I mean, what about when she was just the princess, Phil? I mean, when the force was given her vision then, wasn't it just as mighty of a, of a vision? Because eventually she's going to be the empress, and so therefore the force is guiding her? Oh, wait, but it's in conflict with the emperor. I mean, what do they do? There, there's no clear-cut rules here. So I have a really hard time buying into that desertion equals death. I mean, everything about the order seems to be like, you know, we're in a gray area here, and yet they've got these hard rules. I kind of have always wanted to know why those hard rules were in place. I mean, maybe that would help me understand the motivations here. I mean, yeah, I get that Zhao saw the vision, but he just saw that vision. 
So, I mean, up until then, he's just been kind of bumbling along. Uh, you know, yeah, Anya, when she sees the, the sidekick, lucky happenstance. But at least there it does. It gives us, as you said, the trail to kind of latch on. It no longer feels like, you know, just happy coincident plot points that just fell out of the writer's hand and onto the paper. Because <laughs> there's been a lot of that so far. You know, I mean, I really don't feel like this is a continuation of, of what we've had before. We've got a few characters and a few concepts from what was there before, but the story of what came before kind of feels like it was left on the on the wayside. So I'm constantly kind of like, wait, what is going on? And I, I and I mean, I apologize to anybody out there that really loved this arc and is loving this series because it's not one that really fills me with a lot of joy and happiness. You know, and real quick, I do want to point out, you know, some of you Beyonders may have noticed we did cover uh, issue six with the last arc of this because it did kind of feel like a wrap-up piece. So yeah, we are double coveraging it, but this is where it actually belongs, even though it did fit with the other one. Uh, but yeah, I mean, the art style here. I don't know, does it, is it just me or does it seem like the colors have lightened up on the Star Destroyer? Everything on the Star Destroyer doesn't seem as dark as it was before. A little bit, although now I'm starting to notice the fact that if a character is wearing a cloak and they're walking down a hallway, the only thing you actually have to draw is from their waist up because they don't need legs, it's all black shadow. And may <laughs> I say that it hasn't been that long since we reviewed the first arc of this series, and I don't remember at all covering issue number six when we covered it the first time. So that goes to show how much of an impression, I guess, that that issue made on me. I don't remember that one bit. So uh, so we pick up, and there's two scenes that we get, I guess, amid the action here, so I guess it makes sense to hit those separately before we hit the main action. That way we can tidy it up a little bit. We find a scene in which Sauk is talking to AG-37, and one of the things they're going to do is going to take him close to Mon Calamari, and South basically relates the story of the planet, right? You know, uh, about how he hasn't been back to Dax since before the genocide. He wanted to be an engineer. He apprenticed off-world. He had every intention of returning once his education was finished. Uh, by the time he heard that the One Sith released the virus, it was too late. He couldn't go back. He couldn't help. He never found out what happened to most of his family. He doesn't ever return. And... Uh, basically says, you know, even the shipyards have been destroyed. And Eiji says, you know, that's not completely true. The ring was broken, but not totally destroyed. So it opens up this possibility of them going back to Dak for Sauk, which is another one of these things, you know, kind of the classic Star Wars thing. If we have heroes going off in different directions, don't worry. By the climax, they'll come back together because we'll find motivations for all of them to wind up going to the same location for their own motivations. We also get a scene the transition scene, I guess, and how they're going to deal with Anya, where they're reporting the fact that Anya and Zhao took off. And Maris CFLs are going, what do you mean, escaped and such? And that's when Antares Draco gives her a data pad, and on it, it has information about her. Now, we don't know anything that's on it. We won't know what the heck is going on until the next arc. But she says, uh, is she who we think she is? She reads it. Hmm, this is interesting. And Jawasam is with her. And all of a sudden, the tenor changes. And not only do they have to get Jow back, because it, and it doesn't matter that Yaltaval says, you know, hey, you know, he had a vision of the living force. He feels he must do this. She says, you know, he deserted. The girl must be brought to me and not in luxury this time. So all of a sudden, she wants Anya back, basically by being arrested. And we have no idea why. As for Jawasam, the penalty for desertion has always been death. So now, essentially, our heroes are even more 
on the run from the government, but we never find out why in this arc. And it's just sort of barely hinted at here, but all of a sudden the tenor is changing. As for Anya and Zhao, they completely screw themselves up. They arrive on Nala, they try to blend in, which is difficult because they're about the only humans that are there. They wind up finding out that Daibin is about to be executed for his offenses in this arena. It's a really kind of an odd place. It reminds me of the Geonosian arena in a lot of ways, where there's these enormous spiders or or Mm -hmm. other insects that these uh, law enforcement officials are all uh, riding on as they're about to kill Diamond on this weird planet with these strange jellyfish-type things flying through the air. And before he can be executed, Anya jumps out onto one of the weird... Uh, I mean, again, they look like spiders, but they got faces that make them look almost like wolves or horses. It's they're they're odd creatures, and she just grabs Diamond and takes off with him. A real unplanned rescue attempt, which eventually winds up with them all falling down, 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 down to the surface below this cliff face, uh, with Anya and Zhao surviving, but Diamond falling to his death. He falls down on what amounts to this conveniently placed spiky plant he dies without being able to tell them anything and conveniently for them one of the two guards kind of guys that shows up uh, in order to try to take Anya and Zhao into custody for their prisoner escape attempt lets it slip you know stay away from everybody looks like you did our job for us you won't be taking him back to Dak now will ya they're like Dak wow Uh, As they would say in the Everything Wrong With videos, convenient name dropping is convenient. (laughs) Yeah, because, I mean, even Zhao, I mean, I think he says what every reader is thinking, too. Great. What now, Anya? This accomplished nothing. (laughs) That's kind of, you know, at this point, you know, reading it just issue to issue, I was thinking the same thing. I'm like, what is the point of all this? We're just wasting pages. Get me to something important. What is going on with Darth Red? What is he doing? How is he tied to the Sith? You know, like all that was what I was really more hoping we'd get to. Yeah, that that was just like a wow. We went to all this trouble to have that little sob die, and the only thing he tells you is, "I'll tell you in hell." Oh, thanks, thanks for your cooperation, sir. No, no, this is Star Wars. It should be, "I'll tell you in hell." Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. Gotta add the Han yeah on there. That moves us into issue three. We were left with the guards basically holding Zhao and Anya at Blaster Point, and all of a sudden, as the next issue begins, there's two more of them on the giant weird spider things surrounding them, not just the two that they were confronted with at the end of the last issue, but they come to an agreement. Like, look, you know, he's an Imperial Knight, he would probably kill you, so let's make a deal, and basically the guards are allowed to be praised as the ones that caught and killed Daibin, right? They're heroes now, and Zhao and Anya are able to basically just slip away and head off towards Dak. They get to Dak, go through the wreckage in space and whatnot, and wind up being attacked by both droids and other minions of someone there on the station. They're not quite sure who it is. They think it's Darth Red because that's, you know, they're going to Dak because they were appointed there because of something about Daibin, so they figure if Daibin was working with Red, it must be Red who's at Dak. It'll turn out not to be. But they wind up being briefly accosted, and it proves to them that something is going on on these shipyards. Something is up. As for what is up, 
given the time here, we're probably going to need to carry on with this in our next episode to see who this Sith actually is that's in charge of this and uh, where the action, really, of this arc comes in. That's right. Another one of those that had to be split in two. Now that about wraps up this episode of Star Wars Beyond the Films. We'd like to thank you once again for hanging around with us as we ponder on sharing our fandom. Remember, you can always listen to our episodes streaming online on the Star Wars Report website, Second Airborne Division at www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes are also available on Zoom, Stitcher, and on iTunes, which we always encourage you to leave us a review while you're at it. You can also find links to our episodes on both Twitter and our Facebook pages at SWBeyondFilms, or just type in Star Wars Beyond the Films in the search bar. Hey, but no matter how you get there, be sure to like our Facebook page. It's one of the best ways to interact with us, our own home one, if you will. Not only can you post comments to us about the show, we love interacting with you fellow fans, so if you have any Star Wars and or EU slash Legends questions, or you just want to comment about a past episode, fire off. You can always email us directly at swbeyondfilms at starwarsfanworks.com. Now, lastly, before we go, we wanted to mention you our Audible trial. If you go to www.audibletrial.com slash starwarsreport, you can get a free trial run of audible.com to see what they're all about. Our sponsors, they have more than 100,000 titles. You can explore the Star Wars Expanding Universe, Legends, or any other genre without risk of being stuck with a book you flat out hate because Audible members can exchange any book within 12 months with no questions asked. So in this digital age, if you're thinking of making the switch from the page to the audiobook, Audible just might be right for you. So once again, for Stars Beyond the Films, this has been Mark and Whistler. And Nathan. Saying thanks for listening and may the force be with you. And don't quote us the odds that we'll have a lot more artwork that's difficult to discern in the next episode. Or that we'll have some details as to what's going on. trying to pick up where Legacy Volume 1 left off, you know, you probably noticed from our previous review of the Force... the f Again. Uh, I am impressed that uh, Karina Bechko and Gabriel Hardman, who do the script for this series... I'm sorry, I gotta get the cat out. She will not stop meowing. Yeah. Since I had the house to myself, or had the apartment to myself, I wouldn't have to worry about the damn cat or any noises, but she <laughs> crawls around my feet and goes, <laughs> <laughs>
Not only can you post episode post episodes to our page, we don't care. 